The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. It's good to be with you. We really see you as family and friends. We're sort of those family members that are, move, are living a long ways away and know there's many troubles, but we're still very thankful for this family and for this home. So thank you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Joe or Joseph, and my wife is Mary, and we were married here at Bethlehem. But to disappoint you, our son is not Jesus or Isa, if you know Arabic, uh, and he was not born in Bethlehem. He was born in Karachi. He was actually the fourth global partner to be born in the great country of Pakistan. And if you can tell me who the other three are, maybe I can get Brad to get you a treat or something. <laughs> we also have a daughter who was born in Minneapolis like me. And uh, for the last 13 years or so, we've been serving in South Asia and in the Middle East as global partners. And this last year, been serving as the global partner in residence. Well, the title for the Acts sermon series is The Church on the Move. And you've already seen in the book of Acts the various ways in which God moves his people out into his mission. Well, over 15 years ago, God used an earthquake to move us out, my wife and I out, in mission. In October 2005, a major earthquake hit the northern mountainous region of Pakistan. Sadly, this earthquake took at least 100,000 lives, probably more, destroyed entire cities, towns, and villages. And right after that earthquake, an email went out calling for volunteers to come. It had the title, Come Before Winter. And Pastor John read that email at a Missions at the Main Hall, sort of second best from Missions at the Manse. But a number of us heard that call and responded to go and build emergency shelters in Pakistan to help these earthquake victims get through the winter months. My wife, we were not married at the time, she didn't wait for that email, she left immediately to go and serve. Well, through that earthquake, God opened up entire valleys and regions of Pakistan that were previously impossible, or very hard, I shouldn't say impossible, for Christians to access. Suddenly, through that earthquake, in-person ministry was possible among various unreached peoples scattered, scattered all throughout northern Pakistan, Gujars and Pashtuns and Hinko and Kashmiri and Kohistani peoples. You've probably never heard of them. Well, in the months following that earthquake, we and a group of, many Pakistani, a group of Pakistani Christians were able to travel back into various villages, into the homelands of some of these people groups, able to help build shelters, drink a lot of tea, and in the years that followed, we were able to carry on good works and relationships, most importantly, gospel witness and sharing. Well, being from Minnesota, prior to going to Pakistan, I had never experienced an earthquake. But over the course of those months, I experienced numerous aftershocks, and the first of which, no joke, happened during a prayer meeting one Sunday morning. Our team was gathered for worship, and our most senior, somewhat elderly member was praying. 
And perhaps because he was so focused in the spirit, or maybe because he's a little bit older, he didn't realize the ground was shaking underneath him. And a number of us had our eyes open, wondering if we should make a quick dash for the door or not. So why am I speaking about earthquakes and aftershocks? Well, for one, the roots of our own ministry overseas these last number of years can be found in the story before us today, Acts 10 and Acts 11. We can draw a line from Peter's initial Gentile ministry in Acts 10 to Cornelius all the way to our ministry and many other global partners' ministries around the world today. But beyond this, I bring up earthquakes and aftershocks because I believe there's an analogy here that can help us better understand the significance of what's happening in this story before us today. So here's what I mean. I submit to you that what we see today in the story of Cornelius is a major aftershock, a seven-plus-like on the Richter scale type of aftershock. And just as earthquakes and aftershocks can change the course of a river, something I've seen overseas, so here, God, through this, what happens with Cornelius, is changing the direction of his mission through the church. So, if what happens here before us today, Acts 10, is an aftershock, the question follows, what is the earthquake? Well, the earthquake is Acts 2, verses 1 through 3. Pentecost is the earthquake, right? The day of Pentecost is the climactic point in the book of Acts, which is really strange. Kids, if you learn how to read stories, often that climactic point comes at the end of the story. But in Acts, right away, we see the Holy Spirit poured out and everything happening after that is flowing from that great day. So with this analogy in place, let's dive into the story and let me pray as we do that. Father, we ask for your help now to just grasp what you were up to in the conversion of Cornelius and his household. May the weight and the significance of what happened that day, may it land on us and help us to see, Lord, how, what it means for us today, right now, in this church, in our ministry, both near and far. We ask it in Jesus' name. Now quickly, this story in the book of Acts is the longest story that's recorded, which tells us something of its significance and it divides nicely up into four parts. And if you have the ESV Bible, I think it breaks it up into those four parts. I like to think of these parts as acts. We're looking at the story of Cornelius and his household in four acts. So let's look at this first act, which is chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. And it's Cornelius' vision and commission. So the first act, we find ourselves in the town of Caesarea. Look at the name Caesarea. What do you see? Caesar, right? Caesarea is Caesar's city in the Jewish homeland. At the time of this story, Caesarea was the capital of the Roman province in Judea. The city itself represented the power and presence of Rome as an occupying force over the proud Jewish people. And given that this is a Roman city, it's not surprising that we quickly meet a Roman army officer by the name of Cornelius. 
He belonged to this army that had been ruling over the Jewish nation for more than a century. Now what's interesting about this Roman soldier is that he is a God-fearer, someone who gave alms generously to the Jewish people and prayed continually to their God. He himself was not a Jewish proselyte. That's one who converted to Judaism, was circumcised and started taking on the law. But he's drawn to their God, to the God of the Jews, and worships him. So we're going to see, as the book of Acts goes on, we're going to meet more and more of these Gentile God-fears and their low-lying fruit in the early mission. They become sort of the, the core group of many of these early Gentile believers all throughout the Roman world. So in these verses, we see that God has taken note of this eager, devout Roman soldier. And so he sends, a mess he sends an angel to him with a spe special message. Note, any time we see an angel in the biblical story, especially in the New Testament, we know that something big, something momentous is about to take place. And we're going to see it's no different now, right? An angel's here, God is up to something very big. Well, the angel has a very simple message and command to Cornelius. He says, send men to Joppa and bring one who is called Simon Peter, verse 5. And Cornelius does as, he, does as he is told. Act 2, Peter's vision and visitors, verses 9 through 23. Well, the second act takes us to a place in the city of Joppa, or Jaffa, if you know Arabic. It's a town along the Mediterranean coast, some 30 miles south of Caesarea. And we meet here Peter, and Peter is praying and hungry. Not a good mix, right? Have you been there before? So Peter calls down from the rooftop, asks for some food to be made, and he goes back to prayer, and he falls into a trance. So in this trance, right, Peter sees a great sheet descending from heaven with all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds upon it. Now this is a strange vision, but what comes next is actually very troubling. A voice, which just happens to be the voice of Jesus himself, says, rise, Peter, kill and eat, verse 13. Peter's response is instantaneous, right? It says, by no means, Lord. I'm a good, faithful Jew. I've never eaten anything that is unclean. But Jesus repeats himself twice, two more times to Peter, giving the command to kill and to eat. Thankfully, Jesus also explains himself to Peter, right? Look at verse 15. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now those words, if you know the Bible, sound strangely familiar, don't they? In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, Jesus gives his apostles, the disciples, a teaching says that there's nothing outside a man that can defile him, but rather it come, it's that which comes from within, from the heart, evil thoughts, sexual morality, murder. Those are the things that defile someone. And in chapter 7 of Mark, verse 19, there's a short explanatory note. 
that Mark says, by saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So right, the coming of Jesus has brought this radical change among the people of God from a mosaic law that they were under with its focus on outward conformity to the law of Christ and its inward focus on the heart. So Peter says in verse 17, was inwardly perplexed by this vision. But God is merciful, gracious to him, tells him by the spirit, go down, Peter. You have some unexpected visitors coming and you're to go with them. So now we have Cornelius prepared and Peter, the messenger prepared by God. Brings us to Act 3, which is chapter 10, verses 23 to 48. So the following day, after receiving the servants of Cornelius, Peter, along with some believers from Joppa, they depart depart for Caesarea. In the meantime, Cornelius... He's busy inviting and gathering all his relatives and friends, verse 24, because he wants them to hear this special message. It's got to be something special, right? It's from an angel, or it's going to be from Peter, but the angel has called for it. So Peter arrives in Caesarea. He enters the home, maybe the courtyard, and he finds many persons gathered, verse 27. Now this right here is a global partner's dream. A person prepared by God, eager to hear the words of eternal life. It doesn't happen every day, sadly. So eager that they call everyone that they know to come and to hear this message. Some people call this a person of peace off of Jesus' words in the gospel. Others say that's not a good use of the term. Doesn't really matter. God has and continues to prepare specific men and women who will be the key, that one through which the gospel will spread like wildfire in their community, among their people. So pray. Pray for your global partners that God would prepare and lead them to Cornelius's or Lydia's, as we'll read about later. Pray that you would meet such men and women in your own communities. So moving on, verses 34 through 43, we can read for ourselves in summary form Peter's gospel message to this large group of Gentiles. Now at the very outset of his message, Peter says something quite interesting, and it's not captured all that well in the ESV that you may have before you, but in the New American Standard Version, verse 34, it says, It reads, I most certainly understand now. Or the NIV reads, I now realize. What does Peter realize? He realizes that God is not partial. God shows no favoritism. God is not prejudiced. But rather he is kindly disposed to all who fear him and do what is right in his eyes regardless of their ethnic, cultural, racial background, right? Peter is now realizing that the vision that he saw was not so much about food, but about people. He realizes that the times they are a-changing. 
And now the people of God will no longer be distinguished by what they eat or don't eat or things that they do or don't do, but by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So on this account, realizing this, Peter begins to proclaim the gospel. Now there are numerous gospel messages recorded for us in the book of Acts. And it's a very good thing to do on a Sunday afternoon to look at all of them and compare them. And it's worth highlighting here that Peter is preaching to a Gentile audience. His message, the gospel message, is essentially the same as he preached to Jews. There is not a Jewish gospel and a Gentile gospel. There is one gospel, a gospel that has the power to save both Jew and Gentile alike. So what is the essence of this gospel? Well, you can read it. Let me give it a summary quickly. It's historical, right? It's focused on the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth, who lived in Palestine, performed many miracles by the power of the Spirit of God, was crucified but raised to life on the third day. This gospel message is preached by the apostles. It's apostolic. Peter himself witnessed this risen Lord Jesus. He ate with him. He touched him. And most importantly, this gospel message is salvific, has the power to save. Peter says here that Jesus is appointed the judge of the living and the dead. And you will see that throughout many of the sermons in the book of Acts. And given that this Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world, hung on a tree, he now offers the forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him, who call on his name. This is the gospel message to Jews 2,000 years ago, the gospel message to Gentiles 2,000 years ago, and it's the gospel message to us today and to the nations. It is still the same gospel and has the power to save. So amazingly, as Peter is preaching the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit falls on those who are listening. And we know the Holy Spirit has come upon the Gentiles because what happens? They begin to speak in tongues and to praise God, just like the Jews, the apostles, the early disciples did back in Acts 2, just as God did on the day of Pentecost. So at this point, Peter's perplexity has turned to amazement. These uncircumcised, unclean Gentiles have had their hearts cleansed through faith in Jesus' name, just like his own heart was cleansed through faith in Jesus. And it's undeniable that this cleansing has happened. They have clearly received the Holy Spirit. So Peter puts all the pieces together, right? He's now realizing these Gentiles have just become part of the people of God. They've received the Spirit, and therefore, the next step is obvious. Prepare the waters of baptism. They must be baptized. So Peter gives the command for them to be baptized. Which brings us to the fourth act. And we go back to Jerusalem. We just read it. The church responds, verses 1 through 18 in chapter 11. 
So Peter has returned to Jerusalem, and he's immediately met, it seems, by an angry group of fellow Jewish believers in Jesus. Says these brothers are part of the circumcision party. These are strict, law-abiding Christians, followers of Jesus. They're upset because the apostle Peter went to the home of a Gentile and he ate with unclean, uncircumcised men. Verse 2. They saw the Facebook post, didn't they? They got the Twitter message and they got really angry. Some things don't change, unfortunately. Peter responds to these brothers by sharing in an orderly account the vision that he received while he was in Joppa. How the Lord, by his spirit, told him to go to Caesarea. Peter's saying, I did what I did because God told me to do it. And then Peter shares with them what Jesus said. Jesus said, what God has made clean, do not call common. Verse 10. And then he shares how the Holy Spirit, as he preached the gospel, fell on the believers and they began to speak in tongues and to praise God. So at this point, the angry, upset group of believers, the church falls silent and praises God. They realize now, along with Peter, this momentous thing that has taken place in Caesarea. And they rightly conclude, they make the right conclusion, God has granted repentance that leads to life to the Gentiles. You see that in verse 18. So there's a quick run-through of the story. So why is this story so significant? Well, up until now, in the book of Acts, we have seen the gospel spreading and the church growing largely within the Jewish family, the Jewish nation. The Christian faith, gospel faith, was just a Jewish religious sect. There were, of course, a couple of exceptions to this. Saw the Samaritans believing, being baptized, and an Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8. But both Samaritans and Ethiopians are kind of on the margins of the people of Israel. They're sort of almost Jews. But here, Cornelius, on the other hand, and his many, the many gathered with him, we have full-blooded, unclean, pork-eating Gentiles. But amazingly, and amazing, not just a Gentile, a Roman soldier in Israel, in Palestine. But this Cornelius, his sins are forgiven, he received the Holy Spirit. He was baptized, not because he changed his habits or customs, but because he believed that the Lord Jesus is the Christ. God had opened a door of salvation to the Gentiles through faith in the gospel, apart from works of the law, right? We're going to hear this written about over and over again throughout the New Testament. Truly, God's gift of salvation the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's for all. Not only those who are ethnically or religiously Jewish. So this, this is the major aftershock that I was referencing earlier. It's not Pentecost 2.0. There's only one Pentecost. But what happens to Cornelius, what happens to his household, so closely resembles what happened to the apostles on the day of Pentecost 
that we can only draw one conclusion, that God's gift, gift of salvation, gift of his spirit, is for all, all those who repent and believe in his son. And from here, the mission to the Gentiles is really going to pick up steam. It's going to get going. And Peter and his mission to the Jews and the Jewish homeland is going to fade to the background. And the Apostle Peter, or the Apostle Paul, and his Gentile mission is going to become front and center. This is one of the major turning points in the book of Acts, and it's why the story is so long. So, by way of application, I want to highlight three truths of God, about God that we see in this story of Cornelius. First, we see God's unstoppability. Now, that's not a word. The word processor told me I was wrong. So, you could say God's unstoppable move, which Renee, I believed, preached on just some weeks uh, earlier. But we see it so powerfully here, we got to talk about it again, right? The movement of God to bless the nations through Christ in the gospel is unstoppable. We see it powerfully captured by Peter in verse 17 of chapter 11. He asks a question. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? No one, nothing can stand in God's way. Not even our worldly divisions will stand in the way of God fulfilling his word. Here in Acts chapter 10, we're seeing the unstoppable move of God as the gospel jumps from Gentile or from Jew to Gentile. And this has happened again and again and again for 2,000 years. We have an amazing privilege to see how this gospel has spread for over 2,000 years. In the years, just after the apostles, right, you can read about it. Our, fellow, our BCS students will be reading about it all year. The gospel spread, the church grew largely throughout the Roman Empire. But right beyond the borders of that empire were all kinds of barbarian peoples. And it was God's unstoppable move through men like Patrick and Bonifacius and many others that eventually this gospel spread and the church began to grow among even the barbarians. You don't think of these people as barbarians anymore. They're Europeans. <laughs> but that was a major divide that God overcame. He went from Roman to barbarian, went from Greek to barbarian. Well, in the last number of centuries, and particularly in the last century, we have witnessed the tremendous spread of the gospel of Christ and the growth of his church in places like China. So I asked one of our global partners, tell me how many Christians there are in China today, and she said, most likely between 50 and 100 million Christians. Isn't that amazing? Go back 200 years, that seemed impossible. But this west-east divide was overcome by God. And we could go on. We could speak about the amazing spread of the gospel, the growth of the church all throughout Africa. And this divide from North Africa to Sub-Saharan Africa 
God overcame it again. So there are today still many seemingly insurmountable divides that stand in the way of the gospel's advance. But the story of Cornelius, the story of God's move, unstoppable move from history, should fill us with a hopeful expectation, should be on the edge of our seats waiting to see what God is going to do next. Nothing can stand in God's way. And just to be very clear, this move isn't necessarily happening from America to the nations. There are many who want you to think that Christianity, gospel mission, is a a Western thing, and it's wrong. If you go around the world today, you will meet so many Filipinos, Chinese, Brazilian, one after another, laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel. God is on the move in a big way. So let's be filled with this eager expectation. Let's pray for the gospel to advance. You can come on Monday mornings, 7 a.m., and pray with a group who are praying for that to happen. Second truth about God, God's impartiality. Now, just because the move of God through the gospel is unstoppable, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be on board with him, right? Peter encountered here the impartiality of God, and it challenged his own ethnic and cultural pride and prejudice. He was troubled, perplexed, as God called him to go and preach the gospel to Cornelius. When the report came back to the church in Jerusalem, immediately this group in the church was in a huff and a puff about what was happening, right? Well, some years ago, maybe still, I haven't been around a lot, we talked a lot here about being world Christians. Well, what's a world Christian? I would say it's someone who loves the truth that God's gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is for all, right? It's a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. Emphasis on that last, all. A world Christian is someone who embraces the truth that Paul so powerfully captures in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. One body, there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. A world Christian recognizes that what united Peter the Jew and Cornelius the Roman army captain was not their food, not their shared cultural history or traditions, and it wasn't their politics, that's for sure. What united them was their common faith in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Their shared faith transcended, transcended their ethnic, cultural, social, and even political boundaries between them. So in this age of divisions and endless debates here in this country, we need to remember this oneness of ours in Christ. If we don't recognize it, we may find ourselves opposing God's move and the work of his spirit among the nations. So let's humble ourselves and remember this common faith that we share. 
Third truth about God, God's patience. May not strike you right away when reading this, but I believe in this story we see the patience of God. God's move to bless the nations through the gospel is unstoppable. Cultural pride, ethnocentrism are very real and they run very deep. And they run deep and they're very real for all of us, no matter our background. I've traveled all around the world, it's everywhere. We all have to deal with this as believers. The good news is that God is not only committed to fulfilling his gospel mission, he's committed to doing it through his church. He won't leave us behind. God was patient with Peter, gave him a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, told him through the Spirit to go with these men and to visit Cornelius. He allowed Peter to witness this amazing miracle as the Holy Spirit was poured out on these Gentiles. He helped Peter put all the pieces together and understand the whole biblical story. Later, Peter is going to bless the Apostle Paul in his ministry to the Gentiles. So let's not use God's patience as an excuse to be comfortable in ethnocentrism or cultural or a religious pride that's not based in Scripture. Let's repent of these sins. But let's remember, God is patient with us. It's not always easy. As the gospel goes from one group of people to another, it raises all sorts of interesting and challenging and perplexing questions and issues. But God is patient. And let's take to heart that this gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of salvation, is for all. And God will help us to figure out what it means for us individually, as a church, in regards to our mission, both near and and far. So with that I conclude. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we praise you as the sovereign Lord of history, as the one who's working all things according to the counsel of your will, including the spread of the gospel, the building of your church. Jesus, we praise you as the one who's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Spirit, we praise you as the one who is bringing the nations to life, cleansing hearts through faith. Lord, it's our heart's desire. We want to be aligned with you. We want to be found not resisting your saving work among us and among the nations, but rather in step with your spirit. Help us, Father. Help us to repent of any and all pride, ethnocentrism that stands in the way of us joining you in your mission among all peoples. Lord, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, 
spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.